0: Welcome back to The Principal Podcast, everybody. Today's guest is Arpit Gupta. He is an associate professor at NYU Stern, specifically teaching finance, real estate, urban economics, and he runs a blog which is titled Arbitrage. I think that's an awesome name, by the way. And he discusses a a variety of fascinating topics, two of which we'll, we'll look to get into today. Arpit, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Anything that I missed in the introduction that you'd like to touch on?
1: No, that's all great.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for your time this morning. I've been reading a lot of stuff on your blog lately. And you know, as I mentioned to you prior to starting this call, a lot of the topics that you discuss are super fascinating. And I think they'd be interesting for people who don't necessarily have a finance or economics background as well, which is why I think it's awesome to bring you on today to try to cover at least two of those. Before we jump into those, though, can I ask you how you kind of discover which topics to, to research next and, and how these even come to your mind?
1: Yeah, I don't necessarily have a super structured process for that. So the bulk of my research actually has to do with real estate mm-hmm. and issues related to urban economics, household finance, I mean, how people kind of use space. But I sort of use my blog for both getting across those core research areas that I'm active in, and then also exploring some other things that I'm interested in, but wouldn't write a whole paper about. So mm-hmm. it's a nice way of processing those thoughts as well.
0: Got it. So less systematic than someone might imagine looking from the outside in.
1: Yeah, I actually have in mind. So I've got one reader who I'm not going to name, but I've got one specific reader who mm-hmm. I know personally and never talked to him about the, about the, newsletter, but I can tell from my viewership statistics that he's read every single post that I've written. Mm -hmm. And so actually a thought process that I do is, am I writing something that I think this person needs to know? Because Mm -hmm. I know that if I write it, it's going to go to their inbox and they're going to read it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a little bit of my mental heuristic is thinking about one specific person who I know reads it and thinking about what value can I deliver to that person.
0: That's really interesting. So you write from the perspective of of targeting one person as your audience rather than targeting many people. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, obviously, I, I am reaching many people and right. The whole point and benefit I think of kind of a social media presence of having newsletters and all this sort of stuff is that it's just much more scalable, obviously, right? I can reach many more people than I could if I were just presenting in small seminar rooms in academic settings sure so the the scalability is is kind of key to the whole thing but to kind of focus my own mind i find it helpful just as when you're in a large lecture room sometimes you just look at one student and that's kind of the anchoring device to get Mm -hmm. you through that lecture Mm -hmm. i find it helpful in writing to have in mind a very specific audience and kind of write for that audience member knowing that it will have broader resonance to others
0: That's interesting. Do you think that's applicable to a variety of different types of writing in terms of, you know, even if you're not writing a blog on finance or economics, for example, if you're just writing a journal entry or whatever, do you think it's applicable to try to narrow down your focus to just one person in your audience?
1: Yeah, in in this particular newsletter case, I have in mind the same person for all all the newsletter posts, but it's Mm -hmm. probably helpful if in any piece of writing you have in mind a possibly varying audience an audience member and are targeting it specifically to them and thinking about well what do they need to know and what actions if any do i want them to take after mm-hmm. they read this piece right and i think another benefit of this approach is if you're thinking about it from the standpoint of the audience member and you have in mind mm-hmm. a specific audience member that is probably pretty smart i think that helps you upgrade a little bit the knowledge content of the piece because You're maybe not doing as much very basic stuff because you're thinking of someone, you know, they're basically intelligent, but busy. Mm -hmm. That's probably the case if you're imagining a typical audience member and you're recollecting from people that you might know. And I think that helps you write in a way that is kind of to the point and just is kind of at the frontier of knowledge, which I, I think is a nice, at least it's a writing style I personally like. And I think it's good for other people in the audience to kind of get like, really detailed, knowledge-intensive content.
0: Yeah. And I think that's what I really liked about your blog in particular from from reading it over the last couple of weeks is just that I found that so many of the concepts are obviously super technical and pretty specialized, right? Given your background, these are things that you might be super familiar with, but a lot of people might not be. But I think it's very accessible for most people if they just spend the time to read it. A lot of the information is pretty dense, but if they just spend the time to read it, I think that they would have a lot of takeaways and it's very accessible in the way that you write it and very thoughtful. So kudos to you for that. Yeah, I actually
1: watched a play once and I forget the, the name and all the details about the play, but I just remember uh-huh. it was about the Supreme Court and it was very technical. Lots of writing taken directly from Supreme Court cases and lawsuits and so forth. And I remember Q&A afterwards where the... Writers of the play were there and someone asked, like, well, isn't this like too technical for a typical audience member? Like all this sort of legal jargon. Mm -hmm. And the writer of the play said they only get that question from lawyers. So Mm -hmm. lawyers that are so steeped in the technical jargon, they think it's going to be a barrier to anyone else to access the play. But in fact, people are intelligent and they can pick up on context cues and they can kind of follow along even complex material, I think, or at least the readers I'm interested in, in reaching.
0: Yeah. And that's the beauty of the internet too, is like anything that you don't understand, you can just, it's just a quick Google search away from, you know, you reading something else that might be a good primer into that topic.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So why don't we introduce the first of your articles that I'd like to cover today? It's called how finance killed democracy. I'm happy to maybe do a quick summary of my takeaway from it. And you kind of fill in the gaps from there and tell me what I missed. Does that work? That sounds great. Go for it. So Essentially, I think your argument was that the declining interest rate environment over the last 40 years has made other assets look incredibly attractive, thereby boosting their returns. And at the same time, the power or I guess the leverage of labor has declined while the leverage of capital has increased. And so the average person has suffered because we're now in a lower return environment and Labor is less important than capital is.
1: I, I think that's a fair summary. If you want to think about that in maybe a little bit more concrete sense, sure. think about something like the Vancouver real estate market. So, this is a market I think that's really interesting because not only are the prices extremely high, right? Mm-hmm. Vancouver real estate goes for a- astronomical amounts, but the price to income ratio, which is to say the ratio of how expensive it is to buy compared to the typical income that a resident of Vancouver has. It's a crazy ratio. And what that basically means at the end of the day is that if you bought Vancouver real estate, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you're just Mm -hmm. sitting on a gold mine. You've got this great asset that's appreciated. Whereas even if you're coming into Vancouver and even you have a pretty good job, you're still going to kind of struggle to gain access to this asset class that other people just have by virtue of the timing of when they bought it, a family situation and when they inherited it and so forth. So it's, yeah, this interplay of capital and income returns. That's I think is a kind of fundamental challenge and debate in many societies.
0: Got it. Understood. So because of generational circumstances or whatever circumstances might be at play outside of what comes to mind immediately some people have had the great fortune of owning these assets for long periods of time as they've appreciated so much in value. And now going into that market and trying to enter and own some of these assets is close to impossible unless you've got tons of capital at your disposal.
1: Yeah, that's right. So that's the kind of kind of the basic idea there. And of course, we just talked about it with respect to real estate, where you've got this really interesting intergenerational inheritance aspect to it. But mm-hmm. it's also kind of the case with firms, where we've had this interesting shareholder revolution happen over the course of several decades, which has reshaped and refocused what we generally think corporations are about. We think they're about maximizing shareholder returns now. And that's also seems to have shifted a little bit, the balance of power between labor and capital in some ways. At the same time, we've had that long-term decrease in interest rates, which has, as you mentioned earlier, just increased the value of all assets, you know, Mm -hmm. real estate firms and so on and so forth. So, It's those kind of interesting balance of forces, I think, that are happening in the background in thinking about the level of wealth inequality we kind of have. It also turns out that rich people own those kinds of assets that have appreciated a lot in value Mm -hmm. and thinking about other issues related to how important is labor compared to capital.
0: Just take a step back for one second. You mentioned how the primary objective of a firm has kind of transitioned away from, well, the question is, what has it transitioned away from? And it's now focused on maximizing shareholder value. What was it previously?
1: Yeah, so there's a really interesting paper by Raghu Rajan where they look at shareholder letters over many decades and they just kind of asked, well, what do people in fact talk about? And it's, it's just a mix of things that kind of pop up in the letters over the different decades. So one thing they, they actually don't find is they don't find that Milton Friedman per se played necessarily a large role. So he had kind of a famous shareholder activist idea kind of back in the 70s. And that's not really when it, when it takes off. But at some point, kind of in the 80s, it does seem to be the case that companies are talking much more about shareholder rights and shareholder value maximization as a, as a concept. Of course, that doesn't mean that they were necessarily so altruistic in the previous decades either. Mm-hmm. They're talking about a range of issues, and it wasn't a perfect world back then. And then now you have a slightly different scenario as well in which you see ESG motives have become really important. So sure. firms have also started to optimize and maximize a little bit broader range of different outcomes that they're trying to do. And it's a, it's a difficult trade-off because one benefit of the shareholder view is that, well, there's at the end of the day only going to be one thing that I'm evaluating the CEO at. Whereas the CEO is kind of doing 10 different things at once. They're caring about the stakeholders, the customers, the suppliers, the environment. They can always take refuge if any one of these dimensions isn't going well by saying, well, I'm doing a good job on these other ones over there. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly a tricky balance to strike. But I think there's a a range of evidence that suggests that there is something that shifted in the attitudes on these dimensions. Daron Asimoglu also has a paper kind of consistent with this that's looking at the impact of MBA managers. And there's some, I would say, suggestive evidence that MBAs have a different attitude when it comes to managing companies and thinking about the shifting of rents between different stakeholders within within the company. Mm-hmm. They're, they seem to be associated with lower wage growth for employees compared to non-MBA managers.
0: And could you just explain, you, you use the term rents, if you could just reiterate for the audience what exactly you mean by that?
1: So when we kind of talk about rents, we're basically sort of thinking about profits. And we're really thinking about kind of the excess profits or the profits that are accruing to a firm by virtue of some, let's say, strategic positioning. So for example, that could mean something like GM in kind of the 50s and 60s was just this extraordinarily profitable firm because they were the few companies actually making cars in the world with the industrial bases of other countries destroyed. And so they were just a profit minting machine. And Mm -hmm. that just results in these extraordinary profits by virtue of their market position, their market power. And then the question is, how do you redistribute these rents? Who earns them? And certainly in kind of that 50s and 60s time period, I think there's a sense in which manufacturing workers themselves were able to take a piece of that pie. And they did it because of unionization, collective action. And so you see in that period that the wages, for example, of high school graduates was that are working in manufacturing in these northern industrial cities, Pittsburgh, Detroit, they were doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. And over time, you had a, a range of forces, including offshoring, including Deunionization unionization and so forth that has particularly eroded the wealth in particular of that high school educated manufacturing worker component mm-hmm. and has shifted a little bit more of those rents of those overall profits towards the capital that's investing in these, in these firms, by the way, just to wrap up why rents, why I call it that there's a close parallel to when we're thinking about rents in a real estate setting, because we often think of someone that owns a building as having a degree of rents because if I just am a passive owner of real estate in a desirable location, again, back to Vancouver, I might just see this extraordinary appreciation in value over time. It's not really the result of anything I did. It's just a benefit that I got from passive accumulation of land value. And so rents in those contexts corresponds to the, the physical rents that you're paying and then also kind of gets at this broader idea of what happens in situations when people are just sitting on Pots of gold that are just throwing off a lot of money, and who gets to earn that money?
0: I see. That's an interesting term to use because there's so many intangibles, especially when you're talking about a company, right? That play into the valuation of what that company might be worth in the market today, especially for a lot of these private assets that aren't, you know, obviously publicly listed. And so we can't see what their latest share price is reflected as. And I think coming from a real estate background, like you you think of rents only as, you know, what's actually being collected every single month, what's being charged to the tenant. But you're also talking about, okay, what's your equity worth over a long period of time because of where you happen to own that asset? Right, right, exactly. Let's take a step back and go back to the 40 years of a declining rate environment. The Fed has a lot to do with this. What is the Fed put?
1: Yeah, so that section of the the post is really drawing from work that uh, one of our former PhD students, now HBS professor, Sebastian Hillenbrand had worked on. And first of all, the Fed put is this idea that the Fed is going to respond to shocks to particularly the stock market, mm-hmm. and they're going to follow up a stock market decline by lowering interest rates further, which is then going to put a backstop on how much the stocks are going to fall overall. Sure. And this kind of provides a support For equity
0: markets. And do you think this is a phenomenon that we've witnessed more in the last, I guess, 12 years or or 13 years since the great financial crisis?
1: Well, it's a little complicated because what's happened since that period is the Fed hits a zero lower bound. Mm -hmm. So it becomes challenging for the Fed to engineer further decreases in their rate environment, given that they've kind of already hit a bottom. In -hmm. the last couple of years, it's been particularly challenging because once you hit a high inflationary environment, the Fed also can't lower rates because they're trying fundamentally to lower inflation and raise rates. So they also lack the ability to do a little bit of those Fed put actions. But certainly, if you just look at the last several decades, another thing that you see, and this is work that people have done looking at Fed transcripts, people people like Anna like they sort of find that the Fed, when they're discussing and deliberating what to do in their meetings, they mention the stock market a lot. Mm -hmm. So the stock market and its shifts are certainly seem very salient to the Fed in deciding what actions they're going to take.
0: Do you think that there can be true separation between the stock market, I guess the treasury and and the Fed? Do you think that there's some kind of relationship there that isn't necessarily obvious if you're not doing this sort of research?
1: There are kind of two parts to that question, I guess. So one is thinking about the impact of the Fed itself onto the market. Mm-hmm. So what impact does a rate cycle have on the market overall? And then another question is like, well, we know how to think about the impact of the stock market itself on like how the Fed is deliberating. So the first part of that, the role of interest rate and Fed changes in the market, that's, that's really the stuff that Sebastian kind of did in, in his paper. And he kind of shows this really interesting fact, which is that over these last you know, 30, 40 years when we've had the decrease in interest rates, you can account for basically all of that decrease in interest rates in a very narrow window of time around FOMC meetings when the Fed is making their decisions. What's more striking about the fact, I think, is that if you just look at all the other days, so that's most of the year, mm-hmm. the Fed doesn't have their meetings, you see that there's no systematic trend in what's happening to rates. So all that decrease is happening in that narrow Fed decision making window. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Fed is driving that all by themselves. So I think his interpretation is actually that the Fed is looking at a lot of macro variables and data, they're coming up with their decision. And then the market is kind of broadly learning about these long term forces. And it's all getting priced in around mm-hmm. those FOMC meetings. It certainly shows the importance of um, shocks to the Fed decision making and interest rates. And then he finds that a lot of the equity response also actually happens in around those windows. And it's a very natural Thing to actually expect because when we think about equity prices we think of them as discounted sums of future cash flows right so i'm again I'm, again especially under the shareholder view i'm expecting the cash flows of the company to come to me and i'm discounting those cash flows by something that discounting includes some risk premium some compensation for risk and then it includes a risk-free rate component so
0: mm-hmm. if i
1: just lower that risk-free rate because the fed has cut rates well, that makes the future cash flows more valuable because the sure. discount rate has fallen. And so the value of the company should go up, the premium should, should rise. And so that 40-year time span as the Fed has been cutting rates, interest rates have been falling, has been a big windfall for really the owners of all assets, equities as well as real estate and other, other assets. There's another part of your question, though, maybe, which is that as the Fed is making their decision, they are going to impact the market. Should the market's decision impact what the Fed is doing? And that's actually like a little tricky question question. And, and again, some of that research gets into it, because there's certainly many mechanisms by which the economy responds to the stock market. For example, people might spend less if the market goes down. But it's actually not totally obvious that the Fed should be reacting so much to the financial markets relative to other signals and other measures of economy-wide output. Then there's also the question of, well, maybe they're talking about the financial market because it's all a salient coordination device. They all think it's important. So they all can make their case for what they want to do with reference to what's happening in the market. They don't actually think the market is that important. It's just a convenient way of convincing others. So anyway, thorny question there, but those are some really linkages.
0: Yeah, that's why I really appreciated your perspective on that. And that goes back to the whole idea of the Fed put, right? If they are using the stock market as kind of their proxy for evaluating their decision making, then in some way because it's circular is being influenced by how the markets react and how expectations change. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Are you familiar with Cantillon effects? I'm sure you are. Yeah. So from my perspective, this is a very rudimentary understanding of Cantillon effects, but essentially the argument that Richard Cantillon made was that the mechanism by which money is distributed into an economy impacts the people who receive that money differently. Essentially. People who hold assets in the stock market or in real estate, as new money is funneled into the economy through quantitative easing, for example, these people stand to benefit the most, while the people who don't own a lot of financial assets actually are hurt the most because more money entering the economy means that there will be higher inflation and they're obviously more subject to the increases in prices of their goods than the wealthier people might be.
1: Yeah. The easiest way, I guess, of seeing that type of argument over the last couple of years is probably just comparing renters and homeowners, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened to homeowners is they just saw huge windfalls in the value of their properties. Part of that was driven by decreases, let's say, further decreases in interest rates. So that, again, boosts value of assets. Part of that, let's say, might also have to do with other shocks to economy-wide trends like remote work and then let's say part of that also just kind of has to do with a general inflationary environment in which rents are going up there's a lot of excess demand and let's say part of that also has to do with low supply Mm -hmm. the weaknesses in housing construction. as a consequence of all that we certainly see that house prices are going up and then where the fed comes into that is they're of course buying a lot of mortgage-backed securities they're kind of doing quantitative easing that's keeping mortgage rates low and that's boosting again value of house prices specifically. So not just a risk-free rate for all assets, but specifically the mortgage rate. And by contrast, if you're a renter, the situation looks a little bit different. You're just mostly going to be seeing increases in your rent over time. You're just kind of being exposed to rental inflation and you don't really have any, you don't really see any benefit to the situation. So it's just been a very different world in the last couple of years for renters and owners in ways that, you could say our statistics don't fully capture because the way we kind of calculate inflation, we're sort of measuring that from the perspective of homeowners. As you know, we'll ask them, for example, well, like how much would you, you know, pay for your home if you were to rent it out? Or they'll try to figure out what's a comparable rent for that property. And that's a valuable thing to calculate and try to understand. But and another level, if I'm a homeowner, I actually don't experience any increase in costs, right? I, I have my fixed mortgage. I refinance maybe at the bottom of that interest rate cycle. So I actually, you know, the inflation rate can be whatever it is, but I actually don't have a personal increase in my housing costs. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's a very different situation from the renter that's seeing a large increase in, in rental inflation rates.
0: Could we talk a little bit about your perspective on inflation and more so how inflation is calculated?
1: Yeah. So obviously, we've kind of had a pretty substantial inflation episode the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. There is sort of an ongoing debate about how much that is driven by demand side factors, in particular, thinking about all the stimulus checks that kind of went out, the unemployment checks, pandemic assistance, as well as the fact that a lot of the money that people are receiving in general, whether it be from the government specifically, or just from their ordinary ordinary wage income, they just weren't spending for a long period of time for the pandemic because consumption sort of shut down. And so people just kind of ended up with these pretty substantial cash buffers Mm -hmm. that when the economy started to open up again, they really started to spend. And that's kind of generating excess demand in the economy. By contrast, the supply side is the pandemic's effects more broadly on supply chains, disruption, and that's kind of lowered the underlying capacity of the economy to, to produce goods and services. And so you've got kind of some increase in spending meeting some decrease in underlying supply capacity and that, that some combination of those two things is seems to be behind in inflation with the added complications in recent months of the energy situation reflecting the war between Russia and Ukraine.
0: I've seen both sides of the argument, right? I've seen the side of the argument, which kind of claims that the way that we measure inflation in our economy through that basket of goods over a period of time is accurate. Right, and then the uh, the other side of that argument is like it's completely flawed because they can add and subtract from that basket of goods as they see fit, and so it's not truly an accurate representation of what inflation is at the time. Where do you kind of fall in this argument, and and please feel free to explain it through a lens of deeper understanding.
1: I, I think the Fed, Fed's approach is basically fine, actually, mm-hmm. and you know one very simple metric you can use is that if you'll. Look at the newsletters, let's say, of the inflation truthers out there—the people that think that inflation is actually much higher—and just look at how much they're charging for their newsletters, right? You know, mm-hmm. they're they're not rapidly increasing their newsletter prices over over time in a way that might be the case if you were really concerned that inflation is much higher than what the Fed is estimating. But certainly, it's it's a tricky problem to kind of get at in general. It's uh, particularly a tricky problem when you when it comes to housing, because again, you've got this large part of the housing stock, the owner occupied stock, where you don't really have a rental series to go with it. So you have to kind of figure out what rent applies to that large part of the stock. And then you've got the renters. So it's easier to ask them what rent they're kind of paying, but then people are on staggered leases. So it kind of takes time for leases to sort of turn over. And you see different measures like Zillow has a rental series, ApartmentList has a rental series, then you've got the Census rental series that are all a little divergent from each other for various reasons. So it's just a the rental housing part of inflation is a particularly difficult object to kind of think about. But broadly, I think the inflation series kind of makes sense to me. The other definitional challenge that people have had over the last couple of years is thinking about which subcomponents to kind of focus on. So one thing that was kind of very popular early on in the pandemic is to look at the inflation series and then point to certain sub parts of it as being particularly pandemic affected. So things like cars, because car production kind of just came to a screeching halt that then led to cancellations of orders and things, cancellation of things like chips. And then production found it very slow to ramp up again because now you're at the back of the line to get more chips, for example. So we just saw these large increases in the prices of cars and of used cars. And so for a period of time, you could look at the inflation numbers and say, well, it seems like it's mostly just driven by this used car thing. Mm -hmm. And that will sort itself out in a few months. And then it kind of turned out, well, like another thing became the new pandemic thing. And so there's a a difference between this sort of micro level approach where you're looking Mm -hmm. at a very granular sense at the specific drivers in very specific industries and supply chain issues compared to the macro factor where you just kind of look at total spending. And you say, well, if total spending exceeds total capacity of the economy, you're going to get inflation somewhere you know, I don't know where exactly it's going to go. It's kind of like, you know, if I look at a balloon and I blow it up and the balloon's going to grow in size, I don't know whether it's going to grow more in this direction or that direction, but it's got to expand.
0: And that was the whole argument from the Fed about inflation being transitory and then it wasn't, and then it was transitory again. And then it obviously wasn't, or I guess it's not obvious, but it's just, I just think it's funny that you use the used car thing as an example.
1: Yeah, exactly. It gets at that issue about how much we expect the inflation episode we've seen to be really long-lasting. And it it might also be different between the US and Europe, by the way. So in the US, we have at least some market indications that inflation might recede in the future. We can see this because when we look at consumers' expectations of future inflation, when we look at market implied odds of future inflation, both of those Mm -hmm. seem to have moderated substantially. And by contrast, in Europe, they're Particularly because of the war, just seeing really big cost shocks coming from energy that seem to be pretty bad, and it's, I think it's a little more unclear there what's actually going to happen.
0: Well, I've always found it so fascinating and also really tricky about economics in general. Is just there's so many factors at play that it becomes very difficult to attribute, you know, cause and effect to just one or two things. It, it always seems like there's more than one or two things going on, which is what's leading to this particular effect in the economy. And and thinking like an economist and being able to trace those things down has always been something that I've really appreciated. Do you ever find that to be difficult in your research?
1: Well, I would say that one thing I think economists do better at is thinking about the effects of causes rather than the cause of effects. And Explain what I mean by that distinction. So this is some stuff that Andrew Gelman and Guido Imbes have kind of talked about, I think, where you're sort of distinguishing between X happens, what happens after X, right? Does X cause Y? Mm -hmm. And that is kind of the effects of causes, right? And that's something I think economists are pretty good at because we have been studying these really complex dynamic systems for a while. And so we've developed a lot of tools and techniques and conceptual ways of understanding how to tease that apart and look at the isolated contribution of one factor on a broader macroeconomy, right? So earlier, for example, we were talking about this FOMC window, and that's kind of an example of like, lots of things are happening, but let's focus on one decision point, one decision maker, focus and narrow on the source of variation that we think they're going to be associated with and then see the impact from there. By contrast, I think actually one thing economists are not so good at is looking at some outcome, looking at some Y variable and then asking, well, what are the X variables that kind of contributed to that Y variable, right? What were the kind of causes of that effect that we sort of observe? And so with something like inflation now, you could ask two types of questions, right? You could ask, well, how important were, let's say, the checks specifically? Let's take one example. How important were those checks in driving inflation? And so if you want to say that question, mm-hmm right? You want to look for, okay, well, what variation is there across countries, within countries, and who's getting the checks? And is that driving variation in inflation? But the second question is like, well, what is driving inflation? Is it demand? Is it supply? Is it energy? What's what's going on there? And overall, I would actually say that I think economists don't have as developed of a tool set and technology for thinking about that that question of disaggregating, disentangling what is causing it.
0: Yeah, because it's so much harder to do that than than the other way around, as you were saying, right? It's so much harder to identify this outcome and then trace it back to, well, what is the root cause of this? Because there's exactly. so many moving pieces and the data is so fragmented, right? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Hmm. So looking at this article from a high level, How Finance Skilled Democracy, you know, There's so many different factors at play. Globalization has made labor less attractive because it's available more cheaply abroad. For example, we've been in a 40 year declining and low rate environment now as well. Where do we go from here? Is there a reason this can't continue indefinitely? And how does the average person participate in this new paradigm shift?
1: Well, there's a interesting trend in economics, right? That the moment some trend gets named, it shifts after that point. So, you know, for example, Malthus came up with this, you know, Malthusian economy concept that there's not going to be a permanent rise in living standards because population will just rise up in order to meet improvements in the standard of living. And then as soon as he said it, it stopped being true. So as soon as I wrote this blog post, things shifted actually. Mm-hmm. and One of the things that's kind of happened in the last couple of years is you actually have seen a hotter job market than ever before. It's been a better environment for labor than in some ways than it has been in a long time. Now, inflation makes that tricky because inflation is kind of eroding away the real value of people's earnings, but it's actually been done so in a very progressive way. So low-income workers are actually doing better even in inflation-adjusted terms. And that kind of continues on some gains that were actually happening right before the pandemic. And that kind of suggests some sort of equilibration in which workers are able to command and get a little bit larger slice of the pie. And that has implications not just on wages, but on other amenities that workers are demanding, things like having the ability to work remotely, having better work-life balance, and, and other things workers are demanding. So it's it's possible that we're actually having gone one way or now kind of going back a little bit on the other. And then, as mentioned earlier as well, the whole role of ESG and rethinking about what corporations actually mean and what they're intended to do.
0: But don't you feel as if, this is just all based on anecdotal evidence, I don't really have any research to back this claim up, but don't you feel as if the pendulum is almost swinging back in the, in the direction of kind of the employer as opposed to labor in the sense of as we continue to tighten, as we continue to enter, you know, an increased rate environment, it almost feels like labor has less leverage again um, and we're kind of entering a period in which the employer will have a lot more leverage in, in the say of, of, you know, making making employees return to work for two to three days a week, for example.
1: That's certainly possible. Obviously the economy has slowed a little bit in the last few months, but it's hard to say whether that's going to go into sort of a full blown recession or whether the amount of tightening that we saw was kind of just enough to get rid of sort of the froth in the economy without really fundamentally impairing that relationship between employer and employee. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: One thing we've kind of seen on the labor side, I think, is that you've seen a lot of slowdown in job openings, so how much firms are advertising for new positions, more so than things like layoffs. So that means that firms are more like slowing down the rate at which they hire people, not so much getting rid of the employees that they already have.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, there's been some decrease in the kind of employment participation ratio, but I think for the most part, it's been a very gradual impact on the labor market, whereas the Fed impact has been seen much more strongly in, in other financial markets as we've seen rates go up and so forth. And so, so far, that seems like a reasonable calibration that might get you to a soft landing. But of course, we have we have no idea, and it, it may well turn out to be the case that the impact on the labor market is just going to grow over time. And that'll reset the balance again between workers and firms.
0: Right. And we're all just reacting to this information in real time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Is real estate a true hedge against inflation?
1: It's a, it's a it's a tricky question. So if you go back to sort of the 1970s and 80s period, you certainly see that was associated with real estate doing relatively well. You might ask, well, how's that different from firms? Shouldn't firms also respond in inflation environments? And firms actually did not do as well. So what's kind of going on there? Well, it, it sort of depends a little bit on what's driving inflation. So we kind of have two broad categories of that. One is the demand side inflation, right, where there is just kind of increasing inflation because people are spending a lot. And in that kind of world, you might expect that, well, that's going to maybe raise interest rates, right? The Fed is kind of having to dampen that down. But... But then as long as people are kind of spending, and as long as there's a lot of inflation, well, that should result in kind of high nominal cash flows in the future. And so maybe that's kind of supportive of the value of a number of assets that would include real estate and include include firms. But then another kind of interesting case is, well, what happens if there is also a supply side or stackflationary component to inflation, meaning that there is some element to which inflation is just disrupting the supply side, and it's coming from there's not enough productive capacity? Well, that turns out to be often pretty bad for firms because firm supplies are, you know, so firms are just supply constraint and so forth. Mm-hmm. But then if you look at real estate, you look at housing, well, these kind of supply constraints mean that let's say residential construction is impaired. Right. Right.
0: Right. Because construction costs are, are too high or materials are just not available.
1: Exactly. And yeah. in those kind of environments, well, rents go up because you can't build more units mm-hmm. and, Well, if rents go up, that's, again, the underlying cash flow, sustaining real estate as an asset class. And if those underlying cash flows are doing well, like maybe the asset overall is doing well. So that's one of the hypotheses I kind of have in my head for thinking about why is it that real estate as an asset class has kind of done okay this year so far even as rates have gone up and then even as other asset classes have fallen, right? We just went through this whole logic, right? Clearly interest rate conditions, financing conditions should be related to the price of financial assets. So far real estate sort of seems a little immune from that trend, which is surprising. Mm -hmm. And the one possible explanation is that, well, what people are kind of doing a little bit is they're kind of looking forward and they're saying, well, these interest rate hikes, one of the things that they're doing is they're just cutting all construction. So it's like construction is stopping in a lot of places and that's going to mean that rents are high. And in fact, rents are kind of continue to be high, kind of continue to be increasing. And so as long as that fundamental cash flow is there, that should support the value of real estate. And that's different from firms because the same underlying supply constraints, the same issues mean that other firms are just impaired in their operations. They just kind of have lower cash flows. And that's different from what's going on with rents.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And and I completely see why it's a tricky question to answer, because, you know, as as we just came to the conclusion of we're reacting to all this information in real time. And so it's not necessarily easy to know whether in a stagflationary environment, for example, these things will just hold up as we assume they will in theory. The broader question that I'm trying to get your perspective on is how the average person can protect themselves in an inflationary environment.
1: Yeah, it's tricky because your checking account, your savings account, that's just deteriorating very rapidly Mm -hmm. in real, real terms, month on month. So certainly one way of getting around it is to hold as little as possible in liquid assets and move that on over to investing in something. Ideally, the asset class that you're moving into and investing in is going to be something that will have stable cash flows also into the future. Because again, as we talked about, if that inflationary environment is also destroying the cash flow prospects of the firm that you invest in, well, then the the price is just going to fall. But broadly, I, I would say that investing into something, mm-hmm. be it be it real estate, be it the stock market, you know, should be a good way of trying to ride out these shocks.
0: Yep, yep. Even if it's real estate firms et cetera, some kind of investment vehicle that outperforms what the prevailing inflation rate should be, should, should keep you relatively in a decent position. Awesome, man. Well, that was that was a super helpful discussion. And I really appreciate you unpacking that entire article. The next one that jumped out to me that I, I spent a lot of time on and I thought was super fascinating was incarceration social spillovers. First of all, how, how did this topic even come to mind for you? This is a bit out of the realm of, I guess, finance, economics, real estate.
1: Yeah, I mean it it's kind of coming from sort of a urban approach, actually, which is that this is uh, kind of my my co-authors and I were really motivated back in grad school by the findings that Raj Chetty had come out with at that time, mm-hmm. that there were these large geographic dispersions and variations in access to opportunity. In fact, North Carolina where I grew up is actually one of the places that has very low social mobility which is to say people born to low-income parents are unlikely to become high income themselves over the course of their lifetime, which I found really surprising because in many other ways, North Carolina is a very economically successful state. There's a lot of business growth, there's a lot of dynamism, there's a lot of people moving in. And so we were trying to think about, well, what might account for that? And we thought that the sort of literature had underrated the possibility that there might be broader consequences from incarceration shocks which we thought might have a broader, more pervasive impact on student achievement and performance in ways that kind of might ripple out and impact entire communities.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was one, one part of the article that I c- kind of blew my mind. It was really interesting is when you said a one standard deviation increase in county level stringency reduces students math scores by two to two and a half to three and a half percent of a standard deviation and reduces their English scores by one point five to two percent of a standard deviation. How exactly did you quantify county level stringency in this research?
1: Yeah. So what we really wanted to get at is something that we felt people hadn't really been able to measure before, which is some aggregate measure of incarceration severity, Mm -hmm. right? So we want to understand what happens if I live in an area where there's just more total incarcerations going on. So that's challenging to find some variation that's more random at this broad aggregate level. And so we're looking at the the kind of change in presence of judges that happen to vary in how strict they are in their sentencing decisions. So for a given person that comes in with a certain offense class, a certain number of points, how likely is it that they're going to incarcerate that individual rather than, you know, for example, release them on community sentencing. So, Turns out judges vary a lot in that dimension, how strict they are in incarceration. And that actually means that if I have a particular county where, you know, the judge changes and I get a stricter judge or a less strict judge, I might mean, actually have a pretty severe impact on the total number of incarcerations going on in that local area. There are only so many judges, they oversee tons of cases. And we use that variation at that county level mm-hmm. to get variation in the total severity of incarcerations and then connect that with the changes in test scores of kids who live in those areas.
0: Mm-hmm. The reason that that part specifically jumped out to me was your hypothesis here seemed to make a lot of sense initially, right? It's just that if you live in an area where you witness and you're you're privy to a high level of incarceration, it's going to have some level of spillover effect to your overall outlook in life, and then it's going to impact your social mobility, right? right. But The part that often gets ignored is that Stringency and what might be punished varies on a county by county basis and going back to isolating those variables and attributing each variable to a specific outcome um, I think you guys did a really fantastic job of doing that because you're literally quantifying exactly how much of a standard deviation each of these impacts were
1: so that was that was kind of the, the broad objective we then combined that broad level understanding of the total impact. And then we really dig down to the student level. So looking at children whose parents or other family members were incarcerated, what Mm -hmm. happens to them? And then also what happens to their classmates, people that are in the same school and grade, what happens to their performance as well? What happens with misbehavior incidents that we think is kind of a a channel that potentially helps to account for where where and how these spillovers happen?
0: Mm -hmm. And I want to come back to that point, but something that wasn't discussed in the article, I just would really appreciate your insight here. What do you think makes some kids fall into crime, you know, living in a high crime area, fall into crime versus being the type of kids that just completely avoid it? I guess this is more of a philosophical question, but what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, that's kind of a a deep question. One sort of thing that I've kind of taken away from the, the sort of literature here is you can almost kind of think of this in sort of a state capacity sense. Mm -hmm. So there are some environments in which people are able to transact and interact with each other and they don't have to worry too much about resorting to criminal sanctions. And then there are other environments in which it's just really important to have a reputation as a tough person. And in fact, people have talked about this a lot with respect to the South and people talk about a kind of a Southern honor code, right? That's, kind of the politeness that you sort of see in the South. Mm -hmm. People are very outwardly, very polite to each other. And the Southern honor culture literature kind of highlights that, well, there's a sort of a, a dark underbelly to that, which is that if someone attacks your reputation, your honor, the kind of normative expectation historically is that you respond violently if necessary in order to preserve that honor and that reputation, right? Think of like Alexander Hamilton, you know, finding a duel for... Whatever reason, right? Mm-hmm. That that sort of willingness to go there in order to maintain your your reputation, in part because historically the South just didn't have, let's say, the police presence, the state capacity, et cetera, to resolve these disputes in a more administrative fashion. And so, I think that you have a lot of communities where the the writ of the state doesn't run as large, and it's much more important to demonstrate your your toughness and your Strength in, in other ways, and that kind of is is a little you know lends itself to these sort of sub communities of more crime.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting how this this culture becomes established over time as these these norms just continue to exist because of something like, you know, the state's capacity to to deal with these kind of domestic disputes, for example. And I think it makes it easier to kind of just paint a broader brush and tell a more complete story when you include not only the quantitative information, but also the qualitative side with the, with the history there and kind of explaining the culture as well.
1: Yeah, I don't do as much of the qualitative research myself, but certainly mm-hmm. I actually enjoy reading the work of historians and sociologists and others that have uh, psychologists that have really put a lot of effort into learning about crime. One of the things I kind of got in this project is a little bit of a sense of how deep that literature is and how interested they are in understanding these intergenerational transmission mechanisms, right? So how is it that you have certain communities where generation after generation, people are involved in crime, involved in the criminal justice system and in ways that sort of lead people to be trapped a little bit in the context of their communities and their neighborhoods. And that I think just kind of points to just a broader role for spillover, social interactions, influences in ways that, again, back to our earlier discussion, just are, are hard to think about. Mm-hmm. So it's challenging to figure out how to study these these topics, but I think they're extremely interesting.
0: Yeah. And I'd imagine that you come across these qualitative aspects a lot in your in your research and in your digging to uncover some of the data points that you need to formulate your more quantitative stuff.
1: Yeah. Just as one example on that. I've been doing research more recently on the impact of remote work on commercial office space. And I've had That's the right. opportunity to, to talk to a lot of people that work in the industry and on other side as, as tenants or firms, et cetera. And it's just really fascinating to get people's just general thoughts on how they approach this question. Because in a lot of these research topics, like this one, for example, this will be you know one project that I spend some time on working. But for the people I interact with, this is their livelihood right? They have their whole net worth writing on, let's say, the value of, of office buildings. And so right. they're extremely interested in knowing the answer in some sense, in a deeper way than I am.
0: I mean, that $175 billion of of commercial office in New York City is worth a lot less today, arguably, than it was just two years ago, right? And so to your point, right, exactly. their whole net worth being tied to it, it comes almost at a deeper level, entirely getting their perspective on something like that. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So bringing it back to spillover effects, you mentioned that direct exposure to incarceration only explains part of the relationship between test scores, grades, et cetera, and incarceration. Spillover effects in the community explain 15% of this effect. But what are the findings of this study missing?
1: Yeah. So just to, to clarify a little bit of some of that, right? By direct exposure, we mean children that live in the same household as someone that was incarcerated. How are they doing? And then mm-hmm. by these, indirect spillovers, we're measuring one aspect of that, which is who are the people that you interact with in your grade in school in that, you know, in that kind of time period after the after the incarceration. And so that's another aspect of the total effect that we're able to estimate. And so I think what that just sort of misses is just a variety of other exposures and interactions that that go beyond the ones we're able to measure there. So for example, you interact with students in other grade levels, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not just the and the students that you interact with. Also the students that you interact with, they might have indirect, indirect exposures. They might interact with, you know, for other people themselves, right? We're not measuring that linkage. Mm -hmm. And then of course you have peers in other contexts. You've got people you live near, your neighborhood. So that's an important context in which we think, we think, you know, peers interact and you've got other institutions like churches, family members and other ways that children can just kind of interact with each other that we're not measuring. And so that's kind of all in the the context of sort of these direct sort of student intermediated interactions, and then I think more broadly there is a possibility for these things to impact broader cultural things, things like the culture discussion we were just having. So the norms and attitudes that are going on in a local community when you have increased incarceration, that's kind of taking out a lot of people from the community. That's kind of leaving a hole. It's impairing and impacting incomes, it's Mm -hmm. sort of affecting the broader social milieu that you sort of live in, even if it doesn't impact you personally. So I think there are a lot of interesting avenues there that we're just uh, more limited being able to actually
0: measure. Right. And as you said, I mean, you can only spend so much time on this research and you're not going to be able to cover a lot more than than just kind of one degree of separation, if you will. The big takeaway from this article for me was that you made a statement where you said that we tried to address crime by making punishment more severe. Do you think that this was the wrong approach? And if so, what do you think might be a more beneficial or less detrimental approach?
1: Yeah, my sense is that America is sort of under policed while over incarcerated, meaning that especially relative to the amount of crime we have, we have a high degree of incarceration, but coming with a low probability of detection. So you might get away with a crime, but if you're caught, we'll be relatively stringent and strict in how to enforce that crime. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the expected risk of uh, being caught, if you're a criminal, maybe those two things are identical, You know, low probability of detection, high severity versus low severity but high probability detection those two things on average might result in the same expected cost but i think people are little impulsive so if there's some downstream consequence you might not that might not be very salient to you so this strategy that we have i think is does not do great from a deterrent standpoint mm-hmm. because the occasional very severe sanction doesn't necessarily deter people as much as just presence of police in a local community, the possibility that you're gonna get caught, the visibility, the neighborhood policing strategies, and so on and so forth. So we're not doing a great job of deterring and limiting crime in the first place. And then when we do catch people, we you know remove them out of communities, you know, we put people in in jail if they don't have bail, we put them in prison, incarcerate them, you know, for for offenses. And of course there are many benefits or at least there are many aspects of incarceration that might yield social benefits like just mm-hmm. deterrence and maybe incapacitation for certain criminals that are likely to offend in you know in a window of time. But I think these strategies just have really, you know, negative consequences in the broader social fabric when you're just kind of taking out so many people from communities, removing them. They're getting fired, and when they're released, they have these convictions on the record. They haven't been integrated in society recently, so it's just a very complex, complicated uh, problem. And we're kind of stuck in an equilibrium, I think, where we have a lot of crime, we're not doing a great job of catching it, and then we still have a high degree of incarcerations and other social consequences.
0: Mm -hmm. And that leads me to questioning the this idea of punishment severity in the sense of kind of. Punishing somebody for a crime and using them to kind of set a set a precedent so that other people don't go and commit that same crime. And so that, that person's specific punishment severity might be out of the ordinary. And I, I would love to see a study in which the effect of, of that is actually quantified in terms of does this actually <clears throat> have a beneficial impact on the community or are we just wrongfully punishing this person more than we need to just because we think that it sets a precedent going forward? In yeah, the,
1: it's, a, it's a complicated trade-off. And I think there are other, you know, aside from those two options, I think they're interesting technological solutions. So for example, things like electronic monitoring. So yep. take a person and say, okay, we're going to limit your behavior. We're going to track you with some electronic bracelet, but we'll allow you, let's say, to go to work, right? So you can continue to work, you continue to go to home, but we're going to otherwise kind of limit your behavior. Things like that might be effective relative to either doing nothing or just putting someone in jail.
0: Yep. There's a startup idea in there somewhere. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, hopefully someone from the audience will take it away. Arpit, thank you so much, man. Before I let you go, I I did want to ask, there's no way that you alone can identify all the blind spots in your research and areas that you might be missing. What are some strategies that you rely on in your research to kind of identify and eliminate some of these blind spots in the articles that you're writing or the research that you're doing?
1: Yeah, the benefit of academia is there's no shortage of people to point those out for you. So for us as academics, we're just typically traveling a lot to present our work and our research to different seminars and conferences and different groups of scholars. And they'll just be very happy to point out all the blind spots in the research. So it's a, it's a very active scholar community that I'm fortunate to be part
0: of. You'll always have people there to give you some constructive criticism. Cons-
1: of- you know, certainly criticism, you know, constructive yeah. or not, but, you know, there's a lot of it. So <laughs> there's no shortage of that.
0: Yeah, well, take that as you will. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. I'll be sure to link to your blog Arbitrage as well as your Twitter page. Um, I think that the the research that you're doing is is very fascinating, and I don't think it has to be limited to people who have an economics or finance background. Again, thank you so much for your time. And is there a specific place that people can reach out to you if they're interested in learning more?
1: Thanks so much for having me on. My Twitter, probably the best place to reach me at Arbitrage on Twitter.
0: Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much, man. We'll talk again soon.
1: Thanks for having me on.